0: Let's pray, please. Father, thank you for giving us your holy word. We pray that you'd bless us now as we open its pages and as we hear from you. May we receive the truth of these texts with faith and love, lay them up in our hearts and practice them in our lives. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Please take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 5, verse 33 to 37. As you're turning there, Matthew 533 we're going to do a short series on oaths and vows and looking at what the Word of God says about the importance of oaths and vows. And then we're going to look at the many oaths and vows that are sworn in churches uh, by the part of the the pastor, the congregation, people that are married, and so on and so forth. Matthew 5, verses 33 through 37 is our first text, and then we'll turn to a second one in James. So Matthew 5, verse 33, this is God's Word. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told... You shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be, yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil. And then turn over to James chapter 5. Verse 12, (coughs) James chapter 5, verse 12, excuse me, James 5, verse 12, this is God's word. But above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or with any other oath, but your yes is to be yes, and your no, no, so that you may not fall Under judgment. May God bless the reading of his holy word. The theologian David Wells is the author of several excellent books. One of these books was in itself the subject of one of Reformation Bible College's winter conferences a couple years ago. A, A book that this guy wrote was so great, they did a whole conference just about the book. The book is called No Place for Truth or Whatever Happened to Evangelical Theology. And it is a profoundly important book, which documents the decline of theology and evangelical churches in our time. David Wells also wrote an essay called Our Dying Culture in the late 1990s. And that essay was the first in a collection of essays that was published under the title, Here We Stand, A Call from Confessing Evangelicals. And Wells's essay, Our Dying Culture, is the first article in that book. And although the statistics are a little bit dated, I wanted to read to you one paragraph from Wells' essay to start our sermon this morning. It says, Wells, quote, While the great majority of Americans believe that they actually keep the Ten Commandments, only 13% think each of these commandments has moral validity. It is no surprise to learn that 74%, 74% of Americans say they will steal without compunction. say they will lie if there's an advantage to be had. 53% say that given a chance, they will commit adultery. 41% say that they intend to use recreational drugs. And 30% say that they will cheat on their taxes. What may be the clearest indicator of the disappearance of a moral texture to society is the loss of shame. While 86% admit to lying regularly to their parents, 75% to a friend, 73% to a sibling, and 73% to a lover, only 11% cited lying as having produced a serious level of shame. While 74% will steal without compunction, only 9% register any significant shame for stealing. While pornography has blossomed into a $21 billion industry that accounts for... (laughs) A fourth of all videos rented in shops in the thriving hotel business and on cable, only 2% experience guilt about watching it. And not surprisingly, at the center of this slide into moral relativism is the disappearance of God. Only 17% define sin as a violation of God's will. End quote. The Westminster Confession of Faith has an entire chapter called Of Lawful Oaths and Vows. And the opening paragraph of that chapter describes lawful oaths and vows as, quote, a part of religious worship, wherein upon just occasion, the person swearing solemnly calls God to witness what he asserts and promises and to judge him according to the truth or falsehood of what he swears. The moral statistics that David Wells cites demonstrate that the promises and oaths of Americans today mean very little. But I want to ask a more important question. Why do people, Christian and non-Christian alike, feel the need to make solemn promises and take oaths, especially regarding big and important things like marriage, like business partnerships and contracts, church membership? congregational relationships with pastors and the ordination of elders and deacons? Why do we swear these solemn oaths calling God to witness about these kinds of things? Why do we do that? Well, Romans 3, 4 tells us, every man's a liar. All men are liars. Generally speaking, human beings are not trustworthy. Why do you tell your little kids, don't talk to strangers? If you see a little kid on on the street one of your own children on the street and the car pulls up right next to them, and the window comes down and they're starting to talk to your kids, do you immediately think, oh, isn't that sweet and they're so friendly? You immediately get scared, don't you? Why do we hesitate to, to trust people's character that we don't know, if we don't know who they are? Why do employers want character references for potential workers? Why do we want references before we hire contractors? Why do we read online reviews of stuff? Because all of us being untrustworthy ourselves recognize that this is a fault that we share with everybody else. While we ought to strive to be people of integrity who keep their promises, we we ought to strive to be people whose yes means yes and whose no means no. We know that when something big is on the line, we ourselves need to take a public oath or swear an oath to God himself, calling God to witness that we will do what we promised to do. Now, look at James 5.12. This is a great passage. A great single verse of God's Word. James 5.12. Look at it. But above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but your yes is to be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. Now, I want to highlight the significance of what was just said there. The book of James is wisdom literature written to Christians about living the Christian life primarily, And you would think that if the Holy Spirit prefaces something in Scripture with the phrase, but above all, that whatever follows is going to be something of monumental importance. James has written about some very weighty things in the book of James. In verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to chapter 5, verse 11, the verse right before what I just read to you, he has talked about some of the weightiest things you could imagine. Faith and wisdom, about poverty and riches. About trials and temptations, about being doers and not just hearers of the word, not being partial toward the rich in your treatment of people, how professions of faith are justified before men, the dangers of our tongue and of our speech that are in James 3. Friendship with the world and warnings about judging one another, boasting about tomorrow, warnings to rich oppressors about, against the poor to be patient and suffering. And then we're told in James 5, verse 12, but above all, my brethren, My goodness, above above all that? Above that? What's above that in importance to everything he's written about so far in the book of James? You would think he's going to say, but above all, don't commit adultery. But above all this, don't kill anybody. Above all things, don't worship idols. Don't embrace heresy. Be sure to work hard at your jobs. Husbands, love your wives. What does he say? Look at verse 12 again. But above all, my brethren... Do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath. But your yes is to be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. Now, he doesn't mean don't cuss. Okay, a lot of people, we use the word swear. You know, that guy swears a lot. We mean that they curse or use foul language. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about taking oaths. Above all, my brethren, don't swear oaths. No, he doesn't mean don't make promises and don't take oaths under the right occasions. He means don't swear by the holy, dreadful, sacred name of Almighty God to do things hastily and don't swear to do things that you might not actually do. We know this is not an absolute prohibition against taking oaths or vows. What James means is generally speaking, our word ought to be our bond. What we say, we mean. What we promise, we will do. Why would this be something so important that the Holy Spirit would say, above all, my brethren, do not swear. Listen, because a promise made with witnesses calling God himself to witness is absolutely binding on us. We're swearing by the God who is the truth that we are telling the truth and that we will do what we are promising by God to do. And if we don't, we are calling down God's judgment upon ourselves. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth and the life. Jesus is the truth. God is the God of truth. Proverbs 6, 17 says that God abominates, he hates, he abhors a lying tongue. We ought always to tell the truth. Lying is contrary to the character of God. To walk in the truth and to follow Christ means that we don't tell lies. Walking in lies is the way of unbelievers, not God's people. And what's amazing in the book of Colossians, those four little chapters in that great epistle in the chapter one, chapter two, and the early part of chapter three, have all this incredible stuff about what Jesus has done and how he has saved us. And then Colossians 3, 9, the Holy Spirit says this, do not lie to one another. He's telling the church. Don't lie to each other. Don't lie to one another. You've put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. So don't lie to each other. Integrity is one of the hallmarks of Christian discipleship. Lying is a habit that is hard to break if it's something that people are used to doing. Perhaps we ourselves are not trustworthy people who need to work on being truth tellers. And you realize exaggeration is a lie. Perhaps we know people who have taught us by experience not to believe them. Not to believe what they tell us unless it's verified by multiple independent eyewitnesses. If we profess to know the Lord Jesus, we have to be truth tellers. We have to have integrity in this way. The point of James 5 verse 12, the point that passage is making, is that for people to trust us, we shouldn't need to take an oath or a vow. We shouldn't need to do that it's also making a point if you look at that verse carefully you don't swear by things other than the name of god we are never to swear an oath by anything other than god you see it look at james five twelve again above all my brethren do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath like he's saying on your mama's grave or on a stack of bibles or, or whatever but your yes is to be yes your no no so that you may not fall under judgment Now, we know that this is not a prohibition against all oath-taking or all vows. Jesus did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. We know from the Old Testament that oath-taking is something that God commanded the people of Israel to do. Listen to these passages. Deuteronomy 6.13 You shall fear the Lord your God and serve him and shall take oaths in his name. Deuteronomy 10.20 You shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him, and to him you shall hold fast and take oaths in his name. Now, I want you to turn back in your Bible, turn back to Matthew 5.33. If you were in James 5, turn back a little bit there to the left in your Bible to Matthew 5.33, and I'm going to walk through this text together. And as you're turning there, Matthew 5.33, Jesus is not changing anything in the Old Testament law. What Jesus is doing is correcting Jewish perversions of the law, as well as lowerings of its standard. The law always had commanded far more than its hearers were willing to admit or allow men since the fall they still overestimate their abilities they still underestimate god's holiness and they don't realize that what it is that god demands of them is perfect personal and perpetual obedience not to just some but to all of his commandments and their outward behavior and in all their inward motions affections desires attractions and everything else And so Jesus is correcting misunderstandings on the part of his hearers. Now, before we walk through that text, just want to make one more point to you here. At first glance, you might wonder, why does the Westminster Standards have a very long section on oaths and vows? I mean, it's lengthy when you look at the text of it. But I want you to think about how important are promises in our lives? How important are oaths and vows in our lives? Ministers take ordination vows in which they promise to be faithful to the scriptures and to their congregations. They swear before God that they really do believe that the Westminster Confession and its catechisms, that they are a faithful exposition of scripture. When people get married, they take wedding vows, marriage vows. They swear by the name of God to be faithful to one another, to have and to hold one another, to love the other in sickness and in health, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer as long as they both shall live. When people take oaths of political office, they promise to uphold the Constitution. When people testify in court, they swear by God to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So many people think that we're only bound to tell the truth if we are under oath. And many people think it doesn't matter even then. But the fact is, if we are followers of Christ, we're always bound to tell the truth. We shouldn't need to swear an oath. However, because of the fall, because nobody is ultimately trustworthy in an infallible sense, some promises that we make are so serious, some commitments that we make in life are so far reaching in their implications and so important that we need to swear by God that we will do what we have promised to do. Calling God to witness what we've promised and to take vengeance on us if we don't keep it. All of our promises and oaths first and foremost, are made to God. Yes, married people, they promise these things to each other, but they're really promising God that they'll do their duty in their marriage. The Jews have created a whole bunch of various lower types of vows in which you could swear by something lesser than God, and thus you were a little less obligated to fulfill that vow, and also a little less guilty if you didn't fulfill your vow. And this system of lesser things than God to swear and take oaths by it was not only directly disobedient, uh, to, directly disobedient to the law of God, that swearing was only to be done in the name of God, it also opened the door for lots of frivolous and unnecessary oath taking and Jesus is attacking that directly in this passage. Look at the text, see verse thirty three Jesus said, again, you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. You see how he's talking about the system of graded oaths here? You swear by something more important if you're a little more serious about your oath. But his point in saying, don't take any oaths at all. Let your yes be yes. Generally speaking, that should be our bond. If we say something, that should be what we mean. Notice that everything in common in that list of things there, what does everything have in common? It's all part of creation. Jerusalem is just a city. Okay? Heaven is the throne of God. Earth is footstool. Jerusalem is a city, your own head. You can't make one hair white or black. Everything that they're swearing by is something in creation. Now our culture, and probably some of us in this room, unwittingly make similar mistakes. I swear on my mother's grave. I swear by everything holy. I swear on a stack of Bibles. Why are people okay with swearing by things in creation? Because none of those things can actually see if you're going to do it or not. And that's why we're not supposed to swear by them. None of them can bring judgment against you. I swear by Kingsport to do this. Well, Kingsport can't judge me or hurt me. (laughs) On those rare and solemn occasions in which we are required to swear, we are to swear only by the name of God. That's why wedding vows, wedding promises, marriage promises, they always end with in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. It always gives me the chills. I've done a lot of the weddings in this room. When people say that in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, I'm like, you are calling God to witness here. If you don't do this, you're calling down his judgment on yourself here. All three persons of the Godhead. Look at verse 37. But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no, anything beyond these is of evil. Since we know that there are lawful and there are good oaths that are part of our lives, Jesus is not forbidding all oath-taking here. Remember, Jesus' words have a context. His hearers have been subjected to all kinds of misinterpretations and misapplications of God's law. The Old Testament law regulated the taking of oaths. And that regulation was actually really, really, really simple. But the Pharisees, true to form, have made it really complicated. How are we supposed to take oaths? Only in the name of God, period. End of discussion, case closed. Jesus corrects that error. Don't swear by Jerusalem. Don't swear by your head. Don't swear by the gold in the temple or anything like that. Don't multiply oaths either by swearing by different, all sorts of different created things. In your ordinary, everyday life, let your yes be yes and your no be no. We should not need to swear by the gold in the temple that you'll remember to milk your neighbor's cow while he's gone for a week. Think about how many times we have frivolously sworn or promised in our ordinary conversations. There's a time and a place for very serious Contemplation of promises, carefully considered, solemn promises that we make to God, which we have to fulfill, but every day, every hour, several times a week? No. Are there levels of seriousness, which we then accommodate by swearing on various created items of varying degrees of importance? No. The multiplication of oaths and vows and promises, that's more of a testimony to a human untrustworthiness than anything else. I mean, think about how evil that is. If I swear by something frivolous, if I swear by my, my runner-up ping-pong trophy, that's not going to bind me to a performance. But if I call God to witness, God, God take vengeance on me if I don't fulfill this. I am swearing to you that I will. That's a big deal. That's a lot different. Someone people believe that they need to make swear to do every little thing in their life, that's someone that people have no confidence in. They don't believe in. Everyone knows people that you would need to verify almost everything that they say. And everyone knows people who can't be trusted to fulfill their obligations. We all know people like that. Maybe we ourselves are like that. We also know people whose word is golden. And we all know people that we trust implicitly to do their duty, even if it costs them greatly to do it. And I want to tell you, this is why betrayals hurt. Betrayals hurt the most from the people that we trust the most. Some people who break their promises to us, we think, yeah, well, that's so-and-so. Their word doesn't mean, it. I didn't think they'd be here. They never do what they're going to say anyway. Someone else breaks their promise, it devastates us. Psalm 41, nine: even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. It, it, sharing the pain of that betrayal, that's about the betrayal of Judas. Proverbs 25, 19. Confidence in an unfaithful man in time of trouble is like a bad tooth and a foot out of joint. When people make frivolous, trivial oaths or break serious and necessary oaths, the third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And then the ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness. Both of those are broken when we do that. Frivolous oaths, oaths about silly things, or well, breaking serious ones, we're violating the commandments of God. Commandments three and nine. The third commandment is very much in view in all lawful oath taking. Precisely because all lawful oaths do what? They invoke the name of God. Always remember that when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, the first thing is, "Hallowed be your name." There's no greater way to dishonor his name than to swear to do something. Not do it, to swear in his name that you will perform this duty and then not perform it. It makes sense that sinful attitudes towards oaths and vows would, would violate those commandments. Arthur Pink, in his uh, exposition of the Sermon on the Mount, said about this passage, Let us now consider first the nature of an oath. An oath is a religious and necessary confirmation of things doubtful by calling God to be a witness of truth, and a revenger of falsehood. That's why you say, in the name of God, I promise, I will be faithful to this calling. And if I'm not, may God take vengeance on me. Says Pink. That it is confirmation is clear from Hebrews 6.16, where the Holy Spirit expressly affirms the same. That it is a religious confirmation appears from the fact that it is a part of divine worship. God himself being invoked therein. In Isaiah 19.18, swear to the Lord of hosts, is used for the whole of his worship. It must be a necessary confirmation because any oath is unlawful which concerns only trifling matters or things which need no solemn settlement. That God is called in both as witness and revenger is self-evident because therein consists the form of all the force of an oath. The one who thus swears, acknowledges the divine perfections, appealing to him as the God of truth and the hater of lies, end quote. Is that clear? When we swear by the sacred name of God, as for example, in an ordination vow, in a wedding vow, a church membership vow, we are invoking God as both the witness and the revenger if we fail to do what we promise. It's somewhat similar to what God did with the severed animals in Genesis 15. Remember that strange passage where God commands Abraham to slice in half a bull and several other animals and to line up those pieces and then God comes down and passes between the pieces. That's how they swore oaths in the suzerainty treaties back then. People would have land that adjoined one another. They would cut animals in half and then they would go down between the animals together with their arms locked promising, I won't attack your stuff. I won't take your things. And may the fate of these animals fall on me if I don't keep this oath. It was a self-cursing oath. And God does that for us. God passes between the pieces all by himself. The cross of Christ happens because of that oath, because God swore that oath and kept that promise. The birth of Christ happened because of that that promise. John the Baptist's father, the priest Zechariah, when he finally regained his powers of speech, after nine months being mute, he bursts forth in praise to God. And at the end of that praise to God for the birth of his son, John, who would be the final Old Testament prophet before Christ comes, In Luke one seventy says Zacharias, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets who have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham. The Old Testament shows many promises, many oaths that were sworn by God. The New Testament is God keeping those oaths and promises. In fact, you can think of the Old and New Testaments in that way. Promises made, Old Testament, promises kept in the New Testament. The New Testament is him keeping them. The fact that many of us sit here today, repentant for our sins, believing in Jesus, is because God has kept his oath. God has kept his promise that he made Abraham. We are the children of Abraham. We are the stars of the heavens. Yes, he keeps them even to us who struggle with sin. He keeps his promises. God has bound himself to his beloved people by the work of his dear son. He is able to love us with an unbreakable and an everlasting love because of what Jesus did. Jesus suffers and dies to keep the oath of God to save his people from their sins and bring them into everlasting joy and communion with him in heaven. Why did God do that? Why did he swear that oath? So that we would have more assurance. Hebrews 6, 17, God determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise, to the repentant believers in Christ, the immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath. Genesis 15 is there, so we'll have a stronger assurance. God knows our frailty and our weakness. He showers us with gifts and blessings to assure us against the darkness of this world and the weakness of our own hearts that he really does love us and that he will indeed bring us to be with him in perfect blessedness For all eternity, he swears oaths to that end. And to be like him often, we will swear oaths too. And we are bound to keep them. Now, I want you to take your Red Trinity Hymnal right now and turn to page 861. Take your Red Trinity Hymnal. We're going to read through this little section on lawful oaths and vows. I just want to make a few comments about this because it's extremely important. The Red Trinity Hymnal, page 861. Page 861. I'm going to walk through these and just show you a few more things from God's word about the importance of this, of lawful oaths and vows. Page 861, chapter 22, point one. A lawful oath is a part of religious worship, wherein upon just occasion, the person swearing solemnly calls God to witness what he asserts or promises and to judge him according to the truth or falsehood of what he swears. Stop there. God is the ultimate witness. Of all of our oaths, even the oaths that we make to other people, we swear by his name and nothing else ever. And this is what will prevent us from being frivolous or careless or making silly nonsensical oaths or multiplying them. Such oaths always ought to provoke the most careful consideration. We are called upon by God to consider the one that we are promising this to. Okay, look at point two. The name of God only is that by which men ought to swear and therein is to be used with all holy fear and reverence. Therefore, to swear vainly or rashly by that glorious and dreadful name or to swear at all by any other thing is sinful and to be abhorred. They stopped there. Can you imagine any body of Christian people today writing a creed that uses the word abhorred? We are to abhor certain things. We are to hate with righteous hatred certain things. Swearing and dishonoring by the name of God is to be detested by us. Okay, look at what it goes on. Yet, as in matters of weight and moment, an oath is warranted by the word of God under the New Testament as well as under the Old, so a lawful oath being imposed by lawful authority in such matters ought to be taken. We swear in order to bind ourselves by the majesty and glory of that which is greater than us, the very name of God. For us as believers in the one true and living God, we swear by none but him. With the recognition that such occasions ought to be rare and thoroughly understood so that we are certain to fulfill them. We are not to swear vainly or rashly by, do you see how that's phrased? That glorious and dreadful name. Do you see the name of God as glorious and dreadful? What's in view here is the honor attached to the blessed, glorious, dreadful name of God. If we invoke his name and then make him look back by failing to follow through what we have promised, God is dreadfully provoked by such things. Rash oaths are to be abhorred by God's people. Remember in the book of Ezra, People come back from exile and they're rebuilding the temple and everything's going great. And then the people start intermarrying with pagan women again. And they repent and everyone's sad about it. In Ezra 10 verse 5, then Ezra arose and made the leaders of the priests, the Levites and all Israel swear an oath that they would do according to this word. To to put away the foreign wives and to be devoted to the Lord. So they swore an oath. That was the lawful imposition of an oath, and they would have been wrong not to take it. The people who had sinned by taking pagan wives, they were right to submit to that oath imposed upon them by Ezra. It was a lawful, and it was a good oath. Now look at point three. See it? Whosoever taketh an oath ought duly to consider the weightiness of so solemn an act, and therein to avouch nothing but what he is fully persuaded is the truth. Neither may any man bind himself by oath to anything but what is good and just and what he believes to be so and what he is able and resolved to perform. Yet it is a sin to refuse an oath touching anything that is good and just being imposed by lawful authority. No one is allowed to make a vow to do something sinful. You're not allowed to promise by the name of God to do something wrong. We must be persuaded that whatever it is that we're promising is good, just, pleasing to God before we promise. And it's sinful to refuse to take an oath regarding something that is good and just if it's imposed upon us by a lawful authority. Exodus 22, verse 10. Listen to God's word. If a man delivers to his neighbor a donkey, an ox, a sheep, or any animal to keep, and it dies, his herd or driven away, no one seeing it then an oath of the Lord shall be between them both that he has not put his hand into his neighbor's goods and the owner of it shall accept that and he shall not make it good. In other words, the guy is saying, I'm innocent. He has to swear by God. Take an oath to the Lord that you're telling the truth and that's supposed to be good enough. So in that situation, you couldn't say, well, my yes is supposed to be yes and my no is supposed to be no. No, in this situation, you take an oath. You swear by the name of God, you're telling the truth. If you're called as a witness to testify at a trial, it's good to take that oath. I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help me God. Now point four, very important one. Look at point four. An oath is to be taken in the plain and common sense of the words without equivocation or mental reservation. It cannot oblige to sin, but in anything not sinful being taken, it binds to performance, although to a man's own hurt, nor is it to be violated, although made to heretics or infidels. Remember in Joshua there in the Old Testament when the, the Gibeonites tricked Joshua and the armies of Israel, they they had old, you know, gross-looking bread, and their wineskins were all worn out, and they, they their, their shoes were worn out, and they lied. They lied and said, We've come from a far distant country, and so. Joshua and them, they did not consult the Lord, and so they entered into a covenant and promised, we will not harm you. Even though they'd been lied to, and they weren't allowed to because they swore by the name of God. Even though it hurt Israel, they were bound to that oath. What a great illustration. That's Joshua chapter 9, verses 1 through 20. Mark it down, highlight it in your Bible. Be careful what you promise. Please notice also that the opening phrase of this paragraph says, an oath is to be taken in the plain and common sense of the words without equivocation or mental reservation what does it mean to equivocate what is equivocation it means knowing that the words of your oath mean something entirely different to the people to whom you're making the oath it means you know what he thinks it means is not what i think it means you swear an oath like that you're lying Equivocation also refers to using identical words and statements, which mean contradictory things to different people signing those statements. That's one thing that so infuriated a lot of godly people about the Evangelicals and Catholics Together document. Remember that in the 1990s? And then later on, there was another one called the Manhattan Declaration. Those two documents were written by Roman Catholic, Evangelical, and Eastern Orthodox people in an effort to present some sort of generically Christian united front against the social evils of abortion, and the rising tide of Islam, pornography, and LGBTism. Both of those documents, the Manhattan Declaration and ECT, Evangelicals and Catholics together, proved to be useless. They were useless documents because the individuals who signed them equivocated. And they knew they were equivocating on the key terms relating to biblical truth. For example, ECT said, quote, we are justified by grace through faith because of Christ, End quote. The signatories on both sides, the Roman Catholics and the evangelicals, knew full well that what each of them meant by the words justified, grace, faith, and because of Christ were contradictory to one another. Thus, every one of them did what God's word teaches is a sin against the truth. They equivocated. The Manhattan Declaration said, quote, Like those who have gone before us in the faith, Christians today are called to proclaim the gospel of costly grace, end quote. Every evangelical who signed that statement knew that the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox signatories did not mean what they mean by the word Christian or by the phrase the gospel of costly grace. They knew that the different sides didn't agree on what a Christian is and that they did not agree on what the gospel is. They signed it knowing they were equivocating. Thus, every one of them, all of them, were guilty of lying. Every one of them. And of taking an oath that they agreed on something when they knew full well that they didn't. God's law requires us to sign documents, to take oaths, taken in the plain and common sense of the words, without equivocation or mental reservation. High-profile leaders in those three traditions, Protestant, Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, they know what those differences are. And that's what made those two documents sinful and worthless. Don't sign a statement of faith. If you know the other person signing it, it doesn't mean the same thing that you mean. I'll tell you, it's positively amazing to me that I would have to stand up and say that. That should be so obvious. It's a violation of the Third Commandment and of the Ninth Commandment. Look at points five, six, and seven. A vow is of the like nature with a promissory oath and ought to be made with the like religious care and to be performed with the like faithfulness. It is not to be made to any creature, but to God alone. And that it may be accepted, it is to be made voluntarily out of faith and conscience of duty in way of thankfulness for mercy received and for the obtaining of what we want whereby we, are, we more strictly bind ourselves to necessary duties or to other things, so far and so long as they may fitly conduce thereunto. And point seven, no man may vow to do anything forbidden in the word of God, or what would hinder any duty therein contained, or which is not in his own power, and for the performance whereof he hath no promise of ability from God, in which respects... Popish monastical vows of perpetual single life, professed poverty, and regular obedience are so far from being degrees of higher perfection that they are superstitious and sinful snares in which no Christian may entangle himself. Now, what are they talking about there? Monastic vows of poverty, single life, and regular obedience? What they're talking about is the the Roman Catholic orders, things like the Jesuits and different monastic orders like the Dominicans and the Franciscans. When you enter into those orders, you swear an oath to obey your superiors. And there was a famous anecdote, I remember reading this in a church history book of a, I, think, I believe it was a Jesuit, who said, In the Jesuit order, if your superiors tell you that that which you perceive to be black is white, you shall confess it to be white. We are not to give that kind of obedience to any man, ever. That's superstitious and sinful. Monastic vows of poverty, single life, obedience, they're sinful vows. They're sinful because they involve us in doing things which are either directly forbidden in scripture or they involve us in doing things for which we have no promise from God for the ability to perform them. Making a vow to be single forever is something for which we have no promise from God to keep that vow. Some people have that gift, 1 Corinthians 7 addresses that, but no person has a promise of ability from God to fulfill such a vow. And therefore, it is sinful to take them. Now in closing, oaths and vows, they're a big part of our lives even now, right now. Just as our God is a God of truth and faithfulness, he requires that we imitate him in this regard. That which we swear to do, we are obligated to perform. And therefore, we must not swear about trivial matters because that trivializes the God by whose glorious and dreadful name we swear. We must not swear by anything in all of creation, but only by the name of God. Now, I'm thankful, very thankful, the blood of Christ is able to cleanse me perfectly from the ways that I have broken my vows and the ways that you have broken your vows. Because vows are easy to say, not very easy to keep, We must be very careful regarding what we swear by God to do, because he will hold us to it. The Bible says that from front to back. Numbers 30, listen to Numbers chapter 30, verse 1. Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes concerning the children of Israel, saying, this is the thing which the Lord has commanded. If a man makes a vow to the Lord, or swears an oath to bind himself by some agreement, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. So I want to tell you, don't swear very often. Don't swear often. Just let your yes be yes, your no be no as much as possible. But when you do swear an oath to God, make sure you understand what's at stake in it, what you're obligating yourself to do. And make sure that you're able to do it. Consider everything that you need to very carefully before you bind yourself with an oath to God. God. And let this proverb ring in your ear, Proverbs 20, verse 25. It is a snare for a man to devote rashly something as holy and afterward to reconsider his vows. Next Sunday, we're going to look at the vows that we take as church members, as elders, deacons, pastors, parents of covenant children, and married people. Probably not in one sermon, but we'll we'll give it a shot. (laughs) Following Jesus itself, though, We all know this. That's the ultimate vow. You stand up and tell the world, I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Christ. There is no greater vow you can make than that one. Jesus himself said that our vow to follow him, our resolve to follow him, our sense of loyalty to him and to what the Bible says is true. That loyalty, that vow, that love has to be greater than our loyalty to all in our family including our spouse, our children, grandchildren, our loyalty to family, loyalty to wealth, our reputations, and to our friends. Our loyalty to Jesus is the ultimate vow that we make. If we claim to be Christ's sheep, he and his truth will be the priority and will be the altar upon which we sacrifice everything. Our closest friends, our spouse, our marriage, everything takes a back seat to our vow to follow Christ. There's a lot more regarding all these other vows, and there's a lot of passages we're going to look at uh, in the Sundays to come, but I hope that's a helpful introduction about swearing oaths to the glory of God, oaths and vows to the glory of God, and doing it in a way that glorifies his name. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word gives us direction on how to make promises and how to swear oaths that we swear by none other than the sacred, glorious, and dreadful name of our God, and call him to witness that what we promise we will do. And we know that with the help of your grace, we can make those promises real. Forgive us for the ways that we have not upheld, the things we have sworn by your name to do, and help us to fight the good fight, and to seek in every way to be loyal and faithful to you. And we thank you that the shed blood and righteousness of Jesus has covered all of our broken promises and oaths. Be with us as we sing your praises, as we keep the Sabbath day holy, and we pray that Christ would be glorified in all of it in his name. Amen.